It's uh, always a privilege to be here with you and to open the Word of God together. This morning we're going to spend some time uh, in Acts 16. For the last time, we're going to wrap up our series today. Um, Grace and I are about two weeks away now from our baby girl joining us, so it'll be uh, a couple of weeks before I preach again. Jody has graciously told me that I need some time to adjust our daily life to uh, three browns instead of two, and to two or three hours of sleep instead of seven or eight. Uh, He's also told me this morning, though, that because I'm not going to be preaching for a while, I can kind of do all of those sermons I would have preached this morning. So refill the coffee, settle in, we're going to be here for a little while. Uh, this morning, we're going to conclude our, uh, our short series in Acts, where we've been looking at the beginning of Paul's third missionary journey to Macedonia. And remember, a couple of weeks ago, we detoured here. Right? This wasn't the plan. Uh, when this latest round of, of shutdown and restrictions and lockdown began, we came here to reset our perspective by getting a big view of who God is and by dwelling on his providence in the big and the small things, and remembering that he is at work in all things at all times, and that even now, in all this, he is still in control. What I want us to focus on this morning is the key to this entire journey in Acts 16, the reason for it all, the gospel. Without the gospel, none of Acts 16 happens. Without the gospel, Paul doesn't even set out from Antioch with Silas to spread the good news. There's no Macedonian call. Lydia is not converted by the riverside. The slave girl isn't freed from demon possession. And as we saw last week, Paul and Silas would not have ended up in prison. No gospel means no story. So the gospel is the key, the the reason, the motivation, the core behind all of these things... What can we learn about the gospel from our part of the story this morning in Acts 16? I want us to see uh, three things. First, the gospel is not complicated. Second, the gospel is redemptive. And third, the gospel is our priority. With that in mind, uh, turn with me to Acts 16. And we're going to read... Uh, Our section of the text, which is from verses 25 to 40. So it's Acts 16, 25 to 40. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately... All the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights, and he rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. 
Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens. and They have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came, and they apologized to them. And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison, and they visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them, and they departed. Before we start working through this text together, let's just dwell on the story itself for, for a few minutes. This is an incredible story. This is the kind of story that's been retold by every flannel graph that's out there, right? And many a church play has told the story of the shaking prison and the open doors. This is the kind of story that you go to when everything else is falling apart. To remember that in the midst of whatever you're going through, in anything and everything, that God is sovereign, that he is at work, that he is on his throne and that he is still in control. This is an amazing story of God's sovereignty and provision. So to fully appreciate the sovereignty of God in this text, I want to go back to the beginning of Acts 16 and just walk quickly through what we've seen in the last number of weeks. We started at the beginning of Acts 16 where Paul and Silas depart uh, on this missionary journey and their plan is to go to Asia. And the Lord thwarts that plan. He says, no, you can't go there. And then Paul had a backup plan, so they're going to go to Bithynia. And they journey for weeks, maybe months, and then the Lord prevents that plan. And after weeks and months of what felt like wasted time and effort and expense and energy and journey and hardship, finally the Lord provided a vision and a clear call to bring the gospel to Macedonia. This was somewhere totally different. It was unknown. It wasn't even on Paul's radar when he left. And we can see through our story that God did all of this so that the gospel would get to Macedonia. God is working sovereignly to accomplish his purposes. Once they got there, the Lord brought them to the place of prayer and brought them to Lydia so that she would believe. Later, he brought in their path this possessed slave girl so that she would be freed, that the demon would be removed from her, cast out in the name of Christ. And last week, we read that Paul and Silas were wrongfully accused. They were unjustly beaten and illegally thrown into prison. But in that part of the text, we didn't hear the so that. We didn't get to see what God was doing or what would come of all of this. And neither did they. Paul and Silas did not know in that moment, on that night, what would come of this or what the Lord was working through their suffering. Just try to put yourself in their place for a moment. They knew the injustice of that situation. They could feel it 
Their bodies were bruised and beaten. And we can look down the page and we can see that God is going to accomplish something great through all of this. But they couldn't. They didn't know. And so that night they were aching and they were bleeding from being beaten. Their feet were fastened in torturous stocks. They couldn't have sleep, slept if they tried. And so rather than sleep or moan or despair, they worshiped the Lord in prayer and in song. Just put yourself there. In your darkest night, in your deepest valley, the most incredible pain or sorrow you have ever known, what do you do? pray could you sing could you have sung that song we we sang a moment ago together yes i will in the lowest valley yes i will bless your name they did paul and silas prayed and sang because they had faith in their sovereign lord that he would work in and through their suffering not faith that they'd be freed that's not what this is about. It's not about faith that we'll be healed or faith that our suffering will end. It's faith that God will ultimately save us. Nothing matters more than that. It's faith that the Lord is sovereign and that he is in control. Think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego for a moment. They had the same experience when they were going to be cast into the fiery furnace. And in that moment, standing before Nebuchadnezzar, before they'd be cast into the flames. They said to that king, God can deliver us, and he will. But if not, be it known that we will not serve your gods. They would remain faithful to him. They had faith that the Lord would deliver them, certainly ultimately. And the Lord did deliver them from the furnace. And the Lord did deliver Paul and Silas from this prison. That very night, there was an earthquake. And not just any earthquake. It was an earthquake strong enough that the foundations of the prison shook, that their prison doors blew open, their restraints fell apart. And yet none of them were injured in any way. It was an earthquake local enough that it affected the prison, but it doesn't seem like anywhere else. Nobody else in the town woke up to come to see what had happened, to check on things. It doesn't even sound like the magistrates in the morning knew anything had happened. This was a massive earthquake in a prison alone. This wasn't a natural occurrence by any means. It's not coincidence. This was a miraculous earthquake. This is a hand of God sovereignty, providential moment in time. God is doing something. By this miracle, the doors flew open, right? Their stocks break apart. Their bonds are unfastened, and they're freed. And then, an angel of the Lord brought them out, and he said, go, speak to the people the words of life. But that isn't what happens. Right? That's from Acts chapter 5. That's when the angel of the Lord brought the apostles out from prison in Jerusalem when the Jewish religious leaders had, had imprisoned them. 
And then an angel of the Lord stood next to them and he said, get up quickly and follow me. And they went out after him. But that isn't this chapter either. That's from Acts chapter 12. That's when Peter is imprisoned by Herod the day after James is executed. And it looks like Herod is going to kill him. Those things might be what we expect in this moment. Right? The earthquake strikes. The doors fly open and an angel of the Lord appears. But it's not. The earthquake hits. Their bonds are unfastened. But there is no angel of the Lord. There's no command to escape. There's no command to seize this opportunity for freedom and run. And so they stay. They wait. What's most surprising is that this miracle of the earthquake, their loosed bonds, the open doors, isn't even the climax of the story. That comes next. Soon after the earthquake, the jailer awakes and he sees the prison doors are flung open, thinking the prisoners have escaped and expecting that he'll be punished severely as a result. He despairs of his very life. He draws his sword. He prepares to end his own life. And he hears Paul cry out in this moment, Stop! We're here. The jailer rushes in. He's panicked and he's terrified. He falls at their feet and he cries out, What? Must I do to be saved? This is a plea of a desperate and a fearful, a despairing man. I don't even know in this moment if he knew what he was asking. We can only really speculate what was on his mind. How much of their gospel had he heard? Had he heard them in the town? Had he heard them singing or praying at night? Had he heard from other people that these guys are offering a way of life? A way of salvation, a way to be saved. We don't know. Maybe. Maybe he was thinking about his own physical life. The prisoners are escaped, the doors are open. If they flee, he's done. He was going to kill himself. Maybe that's the kind of salvation he's asking for. We don't really know, but at that moment, Paul doesn't tell him how to save his life. He doesn't demand justice or freedom or safe passage out of there. Paul tells him how to save his soul. Paul shares with him the gospel of Jesus Christ, the only thing that can truly and ultimately save this man. This moment is the climax of the story. This is where we see the saving power of the gospel. We finally have our so that moment. The Lord was working in the beating, in the imprisonment, in the earthquake, so that the jailer and his family would be saved. This is what the story is about. Don't just stop at the miracle. See the sovereignty of God working for the purposes of the gospel. Isn't it amazing what the Lord does and how he works to accomplish his purposes? With that in mind, let's see what, would, uh, what else we can observe about the gospel from our text. Let's look at our three things. First, the gospel is not complicated. If I asked you, what must someone do to be saved? What would you say? How long is your answer? How complicated does it get? 
hopefully your starting point is, is near what Paul says to the jailer. Believe in the Lord Jesus. That's it. That's the key. Believing in the Lord Jesus. And you might say, surely there's more to it than that. Isn't the gospel more than just that statement? Don't we need to know more things, believe more stuff, understand more things about the gospel and about scripture and the Old Testament and Jesus and theology and substitutionary atonement, right? All the words we pack into what does it mean to know who Jesus is. And, and in a way there is more, but only in that that simple sentence must be rightly understood. You must know what it means to believe in the Lord Jesus to be saved. So there's a couple of things we can ask about that. Who is Jesus? You got to know that. What does it mean that he is the Lord? And what are we even believing in him for? Rightly understood, that statement is the gospel. It's what is needed to be saved, as Paul says. What's packed into that little statement that's five words in English is the whole gospel. Let me show you how that, how that is. To know who Jesus is, we need to start with God. Right? God who is the perfectly good and all-powerful creator of all things. He made creation, and he made man in particular to dwell with him, to worship him, to rule and dwell with him over this earth, over his kingdom forever. He made a very good and a glorious creation. But rather than dwelling with God, rather than glorifying him and ruling with him forever, man tried to take that kingdom, that rule for themselves without God. They sinned against him. Because of that rebellion against the Lord, that rejection of his kingdom, man is separated from God by that sin. We cannot redeem ourselves. We cannot reconcile with God by anything that we do or anything we don't do. Because of our sin, we are separated from the perfect, holy God who justly punishes sin. But then, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, fully man, fully God, came to this earth. And he lived a sinless life. At the end of that life, he died on a cross on our behalf, taking upon himself the punishment that we deserved. And after three days in the tomb, he rose from that grave to new life. And he conquered sin and all of its consequences. He conquered death itself. And through his death, through his sacrifice, he provides the only way for man to be reconciled to God. This is what we believe in him for. This is what it means to believe in the Lord Jesus. We trust in him for that reconciliation. That his work in his death and resurrection is effective to save us from the consequences of our sin and reconcile us with God. And Jesus is our Lord. He reigns forever now over a kingdom that will never end and that he will one day bring back to this earth for eternity. That's the gospel. That is what it means to believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved. That's all it takes. 
if you're hearing that for the first time or hearing it afresh or anew, and you want to know this Jesus, you want to believe in him to be saved, talk to me, talk to someone who has trusted the Lord for their salvation. We would love to walk through the gospel with you, to help you find hope, to find salvation, to find redemption in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is not complicated. Let me take this one step further with you. Let's take a look at what happens next in the story. This all occurs somewhere around midnight. The timeline after this gets a little dicey. But at, after this point, somewhere late in the night, Paul and Silas are brought back to the jailer's house. And over that, that night, they, they eat with them. They're bandaged, their wounds are bandaged and clean. And they share the gospel with them. At most, it's like four, six, eight hours, maybe, of teaching, of understanding what the gospel of Jesus Christ is. Not very long. During that night, the whole family is baptized. Hold on a minute. Right? Think about what it means, in our heads anyway, for someone to be baptized. Don't you need to know a whole pile of things? Isn't there like a course or a class or something? Don't you have to be a, an advanced, a level two Christian for baptism? And simply the answer is no. Baptism is not some rite of passage or a proof of maturity or a greater gospel understanding than everybody else. Baptism is a step of obedience that demonstrates that you know what it means to believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved. That's what it is. It's a testimony to the world around you that you do indeed believe that and you claim Christ as your Savior. It shows that you know and believe that Jesus died for your sins and you have been raised with him to new life. That's baptism. It's not level two Christianity. It's an, a public affirmation of your belief in the gospel. Hear the gospel, understand the gospel, believe the gospel, be baptized. That's it. If you're in between those last two things, permit me to ask you why. If you've heard the gospel, you know the gospel, you believe the gospel, and you have not been baptized, why? If you believe in the Lord Jesus, be baptized as the jailer and his family were, as a step of obedience of Jesus Christ, the public testimony of your faith in him, be baptized. We've got a, a baptism service coming on June the 27th. There's still lots of time between now and then to, uh, to talk with one of us, one of the elders, and, and indicate that you want to be baptized, that you know Jesus Christ. And all we're looking to do is confirm that you do indeed believe in the Lord Jesus to be saved. And we'll so gladly baptize you. What an exciting day that would be if it's your baptism as well. All that to say, the gospel isn't complicated, and we shouldn't make it so by adding barriers or extra requirements for salvation or even for baptism. Let me share with you the, the second thing we can observe about the gospel from our text. Number two, 
the gospel is redemptive. The reason Paul had confidence to baptize the jailer and his family is because of the redemptive nature of the gospel. The reality that the gospel through the work of the Holy Spirit will change you. They saw the fruit of the gospel in the jailer's life and they could baptize him and affirm his faith in that gospel. Just take a look at what we know of the jailer from our brief passage here. Prior to our our passage, when they're taken to the prison, the jailer is ordered to guard them carefully, so he brings them into the inner cells, he puts them in the stocks. They've just been beaten severely. They're bruised, they're bloody, they're wounded. And there's no mercy on behalf of the jailer to do anything for these men. A few hours later, he awakes and he finds the prison doors open. And he concludes that they must have escaped. And the consequences to him were pretty clear. We don't know exactly what the laws and practices were around this, if if a prisoner escaped and you were responsible. But at the very best, he would have lost his job, his honor, his status. He never would have been employed again, very likely. His family would have been destitute. At worst, he would have received every punishment for every prisoner under his care. So what would have happened is somewhere in that spectrum. Either way, it isn't very good. Bad enough that the jailer concluded that he should just kill himself. He was desperate, and at the end of his rope, he had nothing left. He had no hope in or beyond this life. And even after Paul called out to him, and he wasn't going to commit suicide anymore, he still came in trembling and fearful. With the prisoners still there, he sees some kind of chance to be saved, to be at least saved from that terrible fate of punishment at the hands of the authorities. And he asked in this moment, what must I do to be saved? And he hears the gospel. He believes in the Lord Jesus. And just look a little further down to verse 33. The jailer then takes them from the prison. He brings them to his family so they would hear about Christ. And then he washes their wounds. He feeds them. And he rejoices with them. Do you see the transformation? In just moments... The gospel has been working to redeem him, redeem his life. He was not the same. The Lord met him in his place of desperation, hopelessness, and fear. In the moment where he despaired of life itself, the Lord grabbed him. We just read at the beginning of our service from Psalm 34, verse 6. The psalmist writes, This poor man cried, And the Lord heard him and saved him out of his troubles. That is the moment of salvation for us and for this jailer. This guy who moments before was fearful, trembling, suicidal, became a merciful, evangelistic, joyful believer in Jesus. In just moments. This is grace. This is great mercy. This is the glorious work of the gospel. It is redemptive. By its very nature, the gospel is redemptive, and that's good news for us. But it's also important to notice that the change in our lives because of the gospel is not just a a benefit or a perk. 
it's necessary. It is what the gospel does, by definition. You cannot have one without the other. You cannot claim belief in Jesus Christ and have no redemptive work in your life. Your life cannot stay the same if the gospel is at work in it. And we've seen this recently in our own preaching series, right? We walked through Romans 6. We walked through Colossians 3. And if you flip back there to those texts, you'll see that it is, uh, you have to have both. Lack of repentance or lack of heart change is incompatible with the gospel. You cannot be the same if the gospel is at work in your life. That redemptive work, that change in your nature from death to life, the change that takes you from condemned sinner to redeemed saint, a change from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh is a necessary fruit of the gospel in your life as it was in the life of the Philippian jailer. So ask yourself this, if you believe in the Lord Jesus, have you seen the fruit of redemption in your life? Can you say, without Christ, that is who I was, or this is who I would have been, but I'm not. Christ redeemed me from that. I am not the person I once was. I've been freed from slavery to sin. I'm no longer under its domination. I am a servant of Christ Jesus. I've been saved from my hopelessness, from fear, because of the Lord Jesus Christ. If that's you, if that work of redemption is true in your life and evident, rejoice, celebrate that, and don't stop until your last breath. Spend your life rejoicing and praising God for his work in your life. If that's not you, if you've got some knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you've heard it, if you've said some sinner's prayer or something, you've been in a church for however long, it doesn't matter. But if your life now is not drastically different than what it was or what it would be without Jesus, if you are still enslaved by your sin inescapably, if you cannot conquer the rule and reign of sin and death in your life, if you have no joy in Christ, if you have no hope, if you have no desire to serve him and to be with him forever, find a Christian to go through the gospel with. Find someone to go through what it means to believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved because that redemptive work is necessary it's the evidence of salvation. You cannot have an understanding of the gospel and still live in a way that reflects this world. It doesn't work like that. You cannot have one without the other. Be sure you've heard, understood, and believed the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you haven't, don't let anything get in your way. Talk to someone. Now, if it means stop listening to this sermon, I don't care, go. Find a Christian. Find someone to work through this with. It's more important than anything else I have to say in the next 20 minutes. Be sure you know the gospel. Be sure it's at work in your life. Let me share with you the, the third thing we can observe from this text. Third thing is that the gospel is our priority. 
we've already seen from, from our text this morning that the Lord is working to accomplish his purposes through the gospel. Right? All through Acts 16, all through the book of Acts, if you read the whole thing, the Lord sovereignly works so the gospel will advance and will spread. Not only that, but I would argue that since the ascension of Christ, and today actually marks Ascension Sunday, that the gospel is the, the primary way that the Lord accomplishes his greater purposes. He's bringing the kingdom of Christ, and he's doing it through the gospel. The gospel is evidently the priority of the Father. He has been working sovereignly for all time for this purpose through the gospel to accomplish what he's, what he's doing. The gospel is the, is the priority of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit's the one who called Paul on this journey and he directed him in his gospel work and he stopped him from going over here and he sent him this way and he brought him to Lydia and he brought them through all of these things. The Holy Spirit's at work. And not just was, but he is. The Holy Spirit is at work in our advancement of the gospel. The gospel is the priority of the Son. Jesus is the one who gave the Great Commission to all of his followers for all time. The Lord is working through the gospel. The Lord not only does this through direct miraculous means like earthquakes, visions, angelic messengers, and perfectly timed storms. But the Lord works this indirectly through his messengers of the gospel like Paul and Silas. Through Acts and in all of church history right to today, Christians are the primary means that the Lord uses to advance the gospel. We're the hands and feet. And in order for us to be effective in what the Lord will and can accomplish through us in that work of the gospel, we've got to be in step with him. The gospel must also be our priority as it is that of the Father, the Spirit, and the Son. If we go through our life with the gospel in mind, knowing that the Lord is and will work through us to advance and to spread the gospel, that we can be the means of that work. Our thinking changes. We will recognize, as Paul and Silas did, that nothing can be more important than the work of the gospel. Look at this story. It's so clear to me, and hopefully to you, that for Paul and Silas, the gospel was their priority. Let me show you in two clear ways. First, we can see that the gospel was their priority because they endured an unjust beating and illegal imprisonment. They weren't afraid. Their own safety, their lives even, weren't the priority. They endured those things for the sake of the gospel. And then the earthquake happens. And they show that the gospel is their priority here because even when the doors open and the bonds break, they don't leave. They chose to stay in that prison and wait on the Lord. They didn't make their own freedom from imprisonment their priority. They saw something else at work. Take this to heart. Do you see how this relates to our life today? Right here, right now. Has the last year not felt like this to you? It certainly has to me. Do you not feel beaten, 
bruised, bloodied. By the last 12 months, maybe it's your life circumstances. Maybe it's, it's employment. Maybe it's, you know, that your kids are home and your house is nuts. Maybe you've got family who are ill or you're ill yourself and your own health care has been affected or your ability to see your family. Maybe you're suffering as we all are because we can't gather in the same way. This has been hard. And if you're not feeling bloodied and beaten, the rest of us are. So open your eyes and look around. This has been rough. Don't you feel imprisoned? There are so many rules and restrictions that affect every facet of our lives. Everything we do. Church doesn't look like this because we want it to. We don't line up outside grocery stores because we want to. We don't have nobody over to our homes or not see our relatives or not travel because we want to do those things. It's because we are effectively imprisoned by rules and restrictions. This has been hard. In this time then that so closely parallels what's happening here to Paul and Silas, what's your priority? Has it been the gospel? Maybe your priority has been your own safety. Maybe it's your health. Maybe it's your life. Maybe you've cowered from the beating you've received this year. Maybe when the earthquake came, you not only stayed in the prison, but you closed your prison door and you locked it again. Maybe you've closed your eyes, you've covered your ears out of fear or selfishness. And maybe in doing so, you can't even see or hear what the Lord might be doing here in this prison. My health, my self-preservation, my very life is not the ultimate good. It is not the greatest thing. It is not the highest priority. If it was, Paul and Silas on many other occasions, including this one, would have fled as soon as there was threat of violence, of beating, of arrest on their life. They would not have endured these things, but they did. These things are not more important than the gospel. They cannot be in our life today. Maybe that's not you. Maybe in this season of difficulty, when you're feeling beaten and bruised and imprisoned, maybe your priority has been your freedom. Maybe it's been your, your rights. These restrictions and rules, they feel unjust, unfair. They feel illegal and discriminatory. And maybe they are. The opportunity to disobey these things, to disregard them, to ignore them, to rebel in a sense, is there. You can choose to disobey these things. Maybe you can choose or maybe you have chosen to walk out of the prison doors. Maybe you've seized your freedom after the earthquake. And maybe in doing so, you've missed 
what the Lord is doing back here in the prison. He's at work for the gospel. And if you leave, you don't get to see it. My rights, my freedoms, no matter how precious, important, essential they are to me as a person, as a citizen, whatever, they do not matter compared to the gospel. They are not the ultimate good, the highest thing, the best thing. They cannot be. If they were, Paul and Silas in this moment after the earthquake would have rushed out of the prison to seize their freedom. But it isn't the greatest thing. They did not do that. Instead, they stayed. These things, however important to us they may be, are not more important than the gospel. We cannot confuse our priorities here. If either one of those things are you, or maybe there's something else that you've prioritized over the gospel, don't be so blinded by your fear or by your fight for freedom that you miss what God is doing here. We're here together in the prison. We're singing, we're praying, and we're waiting to see what the Lord will do in his work of the gospel. Be here. Be part of it with us. Enjoy what freedom we do have to gather together. Join a group of ten. Join a Bible study. Join this. Be part of what we are doing together as this church, as your church, as this body of Christ, in this prison, waiting on the Lord to see what he will do. Don't miss out. Don't be blinded by other priorities. Let me show us one more thing from this passage down in, in verses 35 to 40. The next morning, the magistrates, thinking that a good beating and a night in prison would straighten out these foreign troublemakers and cause them to just leave, they send a message for Paul and Silas to be released. And this is the moment that Paul finally asserts his rights as a citizen. And to us, this is, seems crazy. He could have avoided a beating. He could have avoided imprisonment. And you read through the book of Acts, this happens over and over. It's not because Paul forgot. It's not because he didn't have a chance. He just didn't do it. He chose not to claim his freedoms when he could have. Let me show you why. Well, first, Paul certainly wasn't interested in claiming these rights for his own protection. Right? It's not about him. If he was, he would have done so long before. Right? Some commentators think that Paul was really careful about this and really intentional to show Christians that you didn't need to be a Roman citizen protected by the government in order to be a Christian. So many Christians were foreigners with no rights whatsoever. And had they been beaten and arrested, that actually would have been fine in Rome. No problem. Foreigners, no rights. Beat them, throw them in prison, let them go. It's okay. The only reason this is wrong is because Paul was a citizen. So many people think that Paul did this over and over again so that the members of the church, who would have been the majority, who didn't have these rights, wouldn't have been afraid. 
if Paul the Apostle, the missionary who started this church, loves us and loves Christ enough to endure suffering on our behalf, even though he doesn't need to, we don't need to fear. What I want us to see is that when Paul does claim his rights, it's not for himself. It's for the sake of the gospel. It's for the sake of the church. Paul and Silas, think through this, had just been accused of being troublemakers for disturbing the peace, for advocating illegal customs. Had they just skipped town that morning and left, as the magistrates asked them to, those accusations would have stood against them. The town of Philippi, the people there, would have believed those things. Those guys got accused, they got beaten, they got imprisoned, then they fled. Obviously, the accusations were, were right, were valid. And the church in Philippi would have inherited that reputation. They would have inherited those accusations. They're the people that Paul and Silas hung out with. They're the church they planted. They're all the ones who converted to this thing that they were preaching. They would have suffered because of this. So to prevent all those things from happening, Paul claims his rights as a Roman citizen in this moment. And that forces the authorities to actually look at the accusations and look at what occurred and recognize that they were wrong. And they come down to the prison and they apologize to Paul and Silas, which surely would have got around. And then they ask them to leave town. What a game changer. This moment, this claiming of rights, restores the reputation of Paul and Silas in the city of Philippi. Shows that they were not troublemakers. They were not seeking to cause a disturbance. It clears the reputation of the other Christians. They didn't inherit this now from Paul and Silas. And it preserved the witness of the church in Philippi. Church is not full of people who are seeking to make trouble, seeking to disturb the peace, seeking to oppose those authorities. Their witness was preserved because of this action by Paul. This moment is also critical to a theme that Luke has been working on all through the book of Acts. I said a moment ago that Paul does this over and over again, and, and we know that because Luke is highlighting it, and he's, he's showing us something by telling us this over and over again. In Rome at the time, religions could only be legally practiced if they were approved in some sense by some kind of Roman authority. Courts, the Senate, somebody. The central religion of the time was worship of the emperor. Right? That, was the, that was the ideal, according to Roman authorities. But they would allow other religions if they helped to keep the peace. So that's the reason why they allowed Judaism is because the Jews kept revolting against the Romans. So they allow their religion. Or if a religion isn't really a threat to the empire anyway, and it helps keep the peace. Luke, through the whole book of Acts is trying to show that Christianity is one of those religions. It should be permitted. It helps keep the peace. It's not a threat to the empire. And we can see this all through Acts. You follow through uh, the conduct of the apostles, their deference 
to authorities, their obedience of the law, the evidence, like we see here, that they were not troublemakers. They weren't advocating things that would break or disrupt the peace or, or were illegal. And we can follow this kind of through this, this moment in Philippi. And then when we get to Acts 19 in Ephesus, Paul appears before a judge. And that judge refuses to imprison him solely on the basis of his faith. And that, if you're reading this in the first century, is a watershed moment for Christianity. That's the moment you look to and said, we are not going to be imprisoned in this period of time because of our faith. Because of the work of the apostles throughout the kingdom throughout the empire of Rome to seek to keep the peace, to demonstrate that they were not a threat to the empire. This moment of freedom, they don't need to fear imprisonment, opens the door in Rome for massive work of the gospel. And if you follow through the next kind of stages of church history, that, that obviously doesn't last. Right? Under several emperors, and in particular Nero, massive persecution comes against the Christians. The work of the apostles in showing that Christianity was a good thing, a helpful thing, an excellent thing for the empire, that it wasn't a threat, didn't last forever. Emperors come and go. A new one came and he persecuted the Christians. And even in that time, the early church writers wrote to the Roman authorities, they wrote to the emperor and they would say, this persecution of us doesn't make any sense. Look at who we are. We are the best keepers of the law. We are the best servants of the emperor. We are the best citizens. Look at what we do for the poor. Look at what we do for the weak. Look at what we do for the widows. Look at how none of us are in prison because we're not breaking the law. Why are you persecuting us? It doesn't make any sense even according to your own standards. Another early church father wrote, you know, you've got a law that says uh, if, if a Christian gets arrested for any other crime, because he's a Christian, then he gets capital punishment. He says, that's fine. Keep that law. We don't break the laws. We're not going to get arrested for stuff, so you won't kill us. But stop arresting us at random. It doesn't make sense. We're not breakers of the law. We're not opposing your authority. We keep the peace. We are helpful and excellent citizens in the empire. That has been the pattern in history of how the church has interacted with their authorities, even when it's hard, even when it's serious, deadly, execution kind of persecution. The gospel was the priority for Paul, so much so that he considered even his own rights and freedoms merely a tool for the gospel. He never claims them for himself. It's not about him. It's about how they could be used to spread the gospel. How could they be used to protect the church? How could they be used to preserve their witness in the watching world? What we do says a lot about us to those who are watching. Friends, it really is all about the gospel. The gospel that the Lord providentially brought to Philippi through the work and the ministry of Paul and Silas, so that Lydia would believe, so that the slave girl would be freed, so that the jailer would be saved. 
The gospel isn't complicated because in the Lord Jesus, believe in him, you can be saved. The gospel is redemptive. The fruit of repentance is a glorious and necessary part of the gospel. We praise the Lord for that. And the gospel is our priority. If the gospel comes first, other things can't. Fear can't be first. Freedom can't be first. Everything we have, everything we are, must be in service of the gospel. We must seek to further its work, to protect the church, and to preserve our witness. And in this gospel work, in all things, at all times, even now, especially now, God is sovereign. He is on his throne, and he is still in control. Lord, we thank you for this glorious text, for how in preserving it, we get to see just a remarkable parallel in the circumstance of Paul and Silas and the one that we have before us. Lord, the gospel doesn't make our lives easier. It doesn't make our choices always more clear. Sometimes things are complicated. Sometimes it is hard to see what we ought to do. Lord, we thank you for passages like this that provide clarity, that remind us of the big picture, of your sovereignty, of the priority of the gospel. Lord, I pray that if our, our sight has been clouded or our hearing stopped by something else, if another priority has taken over, if we have submitted to something other than the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we would reject that thing. We would leave it behind. We would stop listening to wherever it came from and tune our ears to the gospel of Jesus Christ, to the teaching from his word. Lord, I thank you, praise you for the gospel, for its work in our lives. And it continues to redeem us day by day, to be more and more like our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray for anyone who hasn't heard that gospel message before or has heard it new today, that you would stir in them a burning desire to talk about that gospel, to hear it from a Christian, to work through the scriptures and understand who you are and be saved. Lord, I pray that many, through our ministry of the gospel, would seek the Lord and would believe in the Lord Jesus to be saved. We pray that, Lord, above all other things, above our desire for health, above our desire for freedom, we pray that you would work through the gospel. We pray all these things in the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ.